guys hello welcome back i haven't recorded in what feels like a hot minute but really it was just last week but i genuinely love getting on here and having these conversations with you guys and let me tell you you are in for just a freaking prime podcast today like i went all out on this i'll get into it in a second but First, let me introduce myself. My name is Mallory. I am your host, but also a dietitian and a registered one at that. (laughs) There's literally no difference between a dietitian and a registered dietitian. I just feel like registered sounds a little bit fancier. That's a little bit of spice. And it kind of pertains to what we're going to be talking about later. So I just needed to give that, you know, credential, essentially. This topic. Oh, I forgot to say what the podcast is about. Mallory, you're being a horrible podcaster. So if you're new to the pod, this is the place where we sift through all the BS nutrition and wellness information out there so that you can decide what you actually want to listen to. It's actually not supposed to say, or I wasn't supposed to say, all the BS nutrition and wellness information because it's not just the BS. We sift through everything. It's essentially when, you know, you're looking at something, you're talking to someone in the store and they start piping off about some new diet they're doing or some trend they've heard about, right? And you kind of think to yourself, "Mm, that seems like diet culture or that doesn't seem legit, but I wonder if it is. And this podcast answers that so that you can decide what you actually want to follow. Now, back into what I was saying. Today's topic is the most highly requested topic I have gotten in my entire duration of being on Instagram with my new account. You'll know the story if you listen to my My Story podcast about my different Instagram accounts. And so that has been since 2019, so three years. And I don't just mean in the sense of podcasting episodes. I mean it in the sense of the most questions I've ever gotten, the most I've gotten requested to record a YouTube video about something, make a post. And it's because it's so prevalent and yet incredibly confusing, and that is gut health. Now, I first want to say it is literally impossible for us to cover everything about gut health in this podcast because there are so many facets to it, and throughout I'm going to make kind of tiny disclaimers that just make sure that you know that what I am saying is not any type of diagnosis if you're dealing with issues or even a specific answer to listen to this and nothing else, okay? That's not what it is. Again, I always say this is a very educated opinion, but I am going to be coming at with you with a ton of actual research, things that are truly a part of gut health, and more than anything, discussing the piece of gut health that is kind of an emerging trend in the past few years, which I'm going to just name as gut talk and gut healing protocols. Now, why I want to talk about this is because of the fact that I don't think it was as common in the past to hear a ton about gut health on social media. There were definitely accounts that talked about it, you know, and said, you know, eat these foods for a healthy gut or people that spoke to specifically IBS or, you know, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis. All of that stuff was very common. And, and you saw stuff about bloating too, but it has exploded in recent years, and especially within the past few months. I can't remember. Let me see if I can pull it up. I was going through gut talk all day today. Not all day, but many times today. I was trying to keep it together, but I was about to explode in all of my research. I'm not going to lie to you. And when you go through it, there are so many videos. 450 million views on gut gut talk. Wow, that was so worth finding the video or finding the the stat on it. I think that in itself says pretty much everything that you need to know about how prevalent it is, especially when you think about how new TikTok is and how many videos would be in that time frame. 
Again, I don't know how short this episode is going to be. You already know since you clicked on it, but I try to keep my episode short, sweet, and to the point, but I want to cover it all today. I'm going to be covering stuff that you have not heard. I literally just said I couldn't cover it all, and then I was like, I'm going to cover it all, but I mean it in the sense of really give this topic the fullest conversation possible. I am talking about both sides. I am not demonizing the gut talk community or the gut health community, and I am not pro it. I am literally showing you all of the research so that you can make an educated opinion and think about things critically in order to enhance your life. So without further ado, let's get into it. We're going to start somewhere that many of you may think, but why? And that is, what is the gut? I know. Stay with me. So the gut is actually the gastrointestinal tract. And it's a long tube that starts at the mouth and ends at the back passage. I was reading through this. This is a like actual scientific article, okay? That th- this is from, like, it's how the digestive system works. It's from NIHA.gov. Like, this is you know, a real deal research article. And when they said the back passage, I literally lost it. And then in parentheses, it says anus. <laughs> Just like, I love it. I don't know why I thought that was so funny. But we have to throw in some jokes in the serious topic. It's not serious. We're going to make it fun along the way. Why I think this is important is because what do most people think about when they think about the gut? I guarantee, especially from what I've seen with my clients and people I've spoke to, most people think their gut is their stomach And then some people think that it is also their intestines within there as well. Most people, if you ask them on the street, I do not believe would say that their digestive system, that their gastrointestinal tract technically starts with their mouth. And here's the crazy thing. Most of the time, people assume that digestion starts in their stomach, which makes a ton of sense, right? That's almost all that we've seen in media and what people talk about. But I just want to give you the quickest depiction of how complex this stuff really is. First, you actually have digestion that starts in your mouth. Salivary amylase starts to break down the food. Then you have esophagus, which has peristalsis. Peristalsis is basically pushing the food throughout your gastrointestinal tract. It happens at multiple different places. In your stomach, there is enzyme breakdown, a lot of digestive juices there. So that is a big part of the breakdown, but it's just one step. Then it goes to your pancreas or digestive juices that have enzymes to break down the food, especially carbohydrates, protein, fat, all that stuff, but mainly carbohydrates and protein, uh, break that down and it passes to the small intestine. Then you have your liver or bile is used to digest the fat and also vitamins. The bile duct carries bile from the liver to the gallbladder for storage or small intestine for use. Then you have the gallbladder, which stores the bile between the meals and puts it into the bile ducts in the small intestine. Put squeeze it bile, squeezes bile through bile ducts into your small intestine. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Then you get into our big boys, okay? These are the guys, the the mans, the peoples that are working. I don't know why I said mans. We could be womans in the small intestine. Women's putting in the work too. Oh my gosh, I'm literally recording this at 7.30 p.m. and it is showing. Okay, and I also researched this. It's been now four and a half hours that I've been going through this because I know all this information. Of course, I don't know every single speck of information about gut health off the top of my head is in like these facts, but I know it, but I wanted to be 100% certain. I wanted to research it. I wanted to put it together. I wanted you guys to feel confident as possible. And I will also have those research articles linked down below, but I'm getting on a tangent. Tangent. Let's go back to the small intestine. So the small intestine makes digestive juice, which mixes bile and pancreatic juice to complete the breakdown of the carbohydrate, protein, and fat Bacteria make the enzymes to digest the carbs. Small intestines move water from the bloodstream into the GI tract to help break down the food. And your small intestine absorbs water with other nutrients. Then your large intestine moves more water from the bloodstream. Bacteria break down remaining nutrients and make vitamin K. Waste products, including parts of food that are too large to digest, become stool. Now there's just two things I want to quickly note here. Can we talk about, and just bookmark, that when your food goes into your intestine, water 
is drawn into it. And what do we know about water, right? When we're puffier, it's because we're holding on to more water. When we're bloated on our period, it's because of changes in our hormones that are causing water retention. Water is a big contributor to how our bodies appear and oftentimes what women say is bloating or puffiness. Just something to keep in mind. Another thing too that I don't mention throughout the rest of this podcast as in depth is actually the way that the bloating can happen when things are moving through your digestion too slowly. So you can imagine, right, when you're at the upper end of this, this is where you can kind of get that reflux, right? If you're not having things go through your stomach completely or they're coming back up your esophagus, that's a reflux. You can imagine, right, when you have a stomach ache, it's because there's something going on in your stomach, especially when we have gastritis, right? That's when we're kind of having that breakdown of the the stomach lining so that those, um, acids are going into the outer edge of our stomach because we don't have a good enough mucosal lining. We can also do this at the large intestine and small intestine stage. I don't say no, I said we can also do this. What I mean is this also can happen, small intestine, large intestine, especially in the large intestine when food is going too slow and therefore sits in the gut for longer and these bacteria ferment it because they continually eat it and this creates gas. Okay. I know that's a lot. But let's move on to the next part. What controls this process? Your hormones and nerves, guys, work together to help control the digestive process. They signal the flow within your GI tract. And I just burped. I'm so sorry. (laughs) GI tract and back and forth from your GI tract to your brain. So your hormones actually is in the cell linings of your stomach and small intestine, which is so fascinating. And they release hormones that control your digestive system. These hormones also tell your body when to make digestive juices, when to send signals, when to know when you're hungry and full, which that's a whole nother conversation we can't get into today. And then also it helps your pancreas to make the hormones that are important for digestion. Now you also have nerves. Your nerves connect with your central nervous system, your brain, your spinal cord, your digestive. And they control digestive functions. For example, when you smell food, your brain sends a signal that causes your salivary glands to make your mouth water to prepare to eat. You even have the enteric nervous system, which is literally within the walls of your GI tract, where food stretches the walls and the nerves of your ENS release different substances to speed up or delay the movement of food and the production of digestive juices. It's pretty crazy how cool and complex our digestive system and our GI tract really is. But let's be honest. Hand on your heart right now, if I were to have asked you before this what you thought most people on gut talk are talking about, do you feel like they were really talking about this whole system and they really knew that there was this whole complex system, or do you feel like they are typically just talking about gut, your gut, without even giving you specifics, and most of the time then thinking that it's just your intestines, or your stomach. And let's just even call out the buzzword now, okay? Let's just call it out. The microbiome, right? It's your gut microbiome. I don't know why I said it in that term. It just felt like kind of like, you know, the gut health influencer type of vibe when I get really calm and speak in this voice. It would probably be a lot more calming podcast (laughs) if I did that. (laughs) But you guys take me for how I am, right? (laughs) But actually, the microbiome is super important. I am not hating on the microbiome. And I'm going to give you guys a little analogy that I read in this article that I absolutely loved to really help you to picture what a microbiome is. So picture a bustling city on a weekday morning, maybe pre-pandemic, you know, not now. The sidewalks are flooded with people rushing to get to work, to appointments. You know, everybody's out and about. They're running into each other. Everyone's kind of doing their own thing. There's all different types of people all around. Now, zoom in. Imagine this at a macroscopic, sorry, microscopic, macroscopic is what we were just imagining before, level. Now you have an idea of what the microbiome looks like inside our bodies. There are trillions of microorganisms. They can also be called microbiota, microbes, in your gut. And there's thousands of different species. And this is the thing. This is important. Keynote. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't even think quinoa is the right word for that. These bacteria include, well, sorry, these microorganisms include not only bacteria, but also fungi, parasites, and viruses. Yes, fungi, parasites, and viruses. So in a healthy person, and healthy is in the sense of someone that has a strong immune system, someone that's in pretty good balance with their body, they're, they're generally not ill is kind of what we're talking about here. These quote-unquote bugs coexist peacefully, and the, numbers, the largest number of them, I just can find that word, is found in your large and small intestine, but they are also throughout the body. You know, it, it's some people even call your microbiome your second brain. Some people call it a supporting organ because there truly are so many key roles that the microbiome does play in our body. And we're going to get into that in a second. Here's another important thing to remember, though, is each person has an entirely unique network of microbiota. So we're not coming out of the womb with the same ish. You know, we're all different. We got little bugs swimming up in there. Not a good thought, but it's true. And this is actually originally determined by your DNA. A lot of it has to do with your mother, even what passes through in, you know, birth. That's, I know it's kind of weird to think about, but it's true. That's the first time that you're really exposed to microorganisms is as an infant and especially delivery through the birth canal and through breast milk too. This is not that conversation of like you need to breastfeed or you need to have birth via the vaginal canal at all. I'm just naming specifically what we have found with microbiome transfer. Now, this really depends only on the mother in that circumstance. But later on in life, when we're exposed to environmental things and diet and all of that other stuff, we can have some shifts. And even though when we are born, we have both helpful and potentially harmful bacteria to begin with, most of the time they're symbiotic, which essentially means that the human body and the microbiota benefit each other. Do you remember learning about this in science class? Like, I always think about this, and it would be, like, the pictures of, like, the shark, like, the whale shark, and he would have the little fish on him, and it would be, I can't remember the names of it, and then there would be, like, this other picture, and it would be, like, symbiotic, and then there'd be, like, parasitic. <laughs> it reminded me of this as I was thinking about it. Outside of science class, back into what we're talking about, what can happen, though, is if they start to move into the opposite direction where it's not a symbiotic relationship and those beneficial bacteria are in smaller numbers, it can become pathogenic, which just means promoting disease. So in a healthy body, these things can coexist without problems, but when there starts to be that disturbance to the balance, which can be brought on by a number of different things which we're going to talk about, then the body can become more susceptible to disease or at least this is how it's understood. But let's talk logistics, okay? Because I am not here to say that gut health is not important. And I think that's really important for you guys to know. I am not someone that is trying to say here that I think gut talk is silly or gut healing protocols are bad just because they're focusing on gut health because that would be ridiculous. Our gut health is incredibly important. And when I say gut health, I mean our gastrointestinal tract. I mean our whole body. I mean our microbiome filled with different microorganisms and microbes. These things play a very crucial role in human health. They supply essential nutrients. They synthesize vitamin K. This is done in the large intestine. They aid in digestion of cellulose, which comes from plants. Now, They've also been found to be involved in many diseases. This could be irritable bowel disorder, obesity, although I don't like to call obesity a disease and I don't love that word, but just for simplicity, we're going to use that in this occasion when talking about research studies, diabetes, carcinoma, HIV, mental health disturbances, autism, Lots of things are connected to it, and the things that can affect our gut health are antibiotics, illness, stress, aging, dietary habits, and lifestyle. 
which I don't think is much of a surprise because we see this affect us in life in many other ways. But let's just call it out how it is. What I see 95% of people really focusing on, and I don't mean that they're not focusing on anything else, but I mean really focusing on when it comes to gut health, is always the food. Now, I want to make it very clear that I am in no way saying that food does not affect your gut health. Because the reality is, it does. But I want to set the record straight on the actual research that we have to support the way in which food does affect your microbiome. So there was some really interesting research on this, and I wanted to kind of compile it and give you guys the three findings that I took away, the big takeaways. The number one was that your gut adapts to you. So there was actually this study that was done where they took short consent short-term consumption, wow, of diets composed of entirely animal meat, eggs, and cheeses versus plant-rich diets pretty much entirely of grains, legumes, fruits, and vegetables. And actually, they found that both of those altered the microbial community, so that basically the microbiomes did change to adjust to those things. And the animal-based diet actually increased the level of bile that it had, the abundance of bile, And it decreased the bacteria that were there to metabolize dietary plant polysaccharides, which is basically the carbohydrates in plants. I know we don't think about carbohydrates in plants a lot of the time, but they are there. It's fascinating to see how when you introduce something, our body is smart enough to see how we need to change. And I think this is another one of those star or keynote bookmark points to take with you throughout this conversation is if your gut adapts to you when you do or do not eat something and it changes around the bacteria that you actually have in your microbiome to digest things, then wouldn't it make sense that if we remove something and try to add it back in, that we are going to have a reaction to it? Just some food for thought. Number two, The main positives that they found that were really beneficial for gut health were polyphenols, which come in fruit and vegetables, fiber, of course, and then prebiotics, which come in a lot of different foods that we kind of eat and think about as nourishing. Now, the negatives, which I thought was very interesting, they did, of course, speak about the Western diet. I do have a hard time with the Western diet because of the fact that I feel like it is very poorly defined. You know, it's really different for everyone, but they do talk about processed foods and all of that type of stuff and how that can have a negative effect. But even more than the processed foods themselves having a negative effect, what they actually found is that because of the similarity between many of those foods where they're most of the time made of the same things, it can create a lack of bacterial diversity. And that is actually what can cause poor microbiome and an imbalance is because you're only putting in similar types of food. So I thought that was quite fascinating. But the other things they talk about, which we never hear about, is an excess of iron. So having too much iron can actually affect you negatively, which iron does come in red meat, but it also comes in a lot of fortified cereals. And then cigarettes, which, you know, not surprising. I just want to note that the research around sugar being toxic for your gut, having to remove gluten, having to remove dairy, having to be aware of quote-unquote toxins in your food and gums and all of these other things were not there. There were not research studies about them, at least not significant ones. I'm sure you may be able to find ones if you're scouring the internet But most of them are what we consider lay articles. This means someone that just kind of writes an article based off their experience, or they don't actually have studies to back it up. It's really off of just what they've seen, what they've experienced. Now, I am 100% not discounting these things, but I also do think it's very important to put an emphasis on the things that we actually know to be proven. And I think that this gives us a really good basis for the way in which food actually affects our gut. Now, I can't go through every single one of the ways that your gut can be affected, like stress, lifestyle factors, all of that stuff. And we're going to talk more about things that can affect your gut later on. But 
I next want to go into this idea of what even is a gut imbalance. It's often called dysbiosis, and it really does tie into what I was saying earlier. It's just this reduction in the microbial diversity and then also a decrease in the beneficial bacteria and an increase in the bacteria that's not as beneficial. So when people are saying that you have this gut imbalance, gut dysbiosis, that you're, you have a bad gut health, that's what they're talking about. And now let's get into the symptoms. I have seen every single symptom known to man <laughs> claimed on TikTok about gut health disturbances, but I am just going to name some of the most common. So the number one that you always see is you bloat easily. Number two, you crave sugar and carbs. Number three, sorry, I needed a deep breath. <laughs> this stuff gets me so heated when I start going through the symptoms. Number three, you're fatigued. Four, irregular bowel movements. Five, weak nails or poorly grown hair. Six, low mood. Seven, low libido. Eight, trouble sleeping. Nine, anxiety or depression. Ten, IBS. Now, something that is very important to know before we move forward is that there are very serious gastrointestinal gastrointestinal conditions that can arise that could certainly make you feel this way. Ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, oh my gosh, I cannot speak. Ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, celiac disease are very, very serious gut health conditions and they are not to be taken lightly. It is always important when it comes to gut health to check off the initial boxes if you are experiencing extreme digestive discomfort and pain getting a colonoscopy, an endoscopy, endoscopy. Wow. Guys, don't record at 8 p.m. <laughs> Celiac testing, like the actual real deal ones, not just getting some Everly test, which we're going to go into in a little bit. I know many people that have experienced the challenge of getting these things diagnosed, and it makes me so sad that it's so hard for people to really get the diagnosis that they need when they're dealing with these very serious things. But in this podcast, we're not highlighting this stuff. We're, we're highlighting the people that are believing that they have gut health problems, mainly from what they've seen online, possibly some from some personal experiences, and hopefully have gotten all of these things checked out just to be safe. So, when we go back to the symptoms, though, and we watch the video, right? You're scrolling through TikTok. You see some girl come up. She says, hi, I'm a gut health specialist. And if you deal with these things, then here's what you need to do. And I've literally seen videos like this. I watch freaking dozens and dozens of them today. This is typically what they do. They one, give you blanket advice of the things that you need to do, which most of the time includes eating probiotics-rich foods, stressing less, going on low FODMAP, drinking greens, like the freaking all the greens powders. I don't understand how that became a thing. Restricting a number of different things, typically gluten, dairy, processed food, oils, digestive enzymes, you know, you name it, they have done it. They'll have you doing parasite cleanses, random stuff, without even knowing anything about you, which is already red flag, right? Number two, they tell you to get tests done and go to maybe a naturopath, a holistic doctor, something along those lines. Now, when they talk about these tests, they're typically talking about three different tests that they want you to get. These three tests are the food intolerance test, the GI MAP test, and SIBO breath tests. Let's start it off with our food intolerance testing. Now, this can typically be seen in like the Everly test or any type of panel that you're typically getting, even from a doctor's office, honestly. And what it is, is they're taking a sample of blood and they're testing for antibodies in it, which are called IgG to see the reaction to different foods. 
Something that's really important to understand with this is that a food allergy is very different than a food sensitivity. An allergy is the body having an immune response to a food, and this can be very dangerous. For example, think peanut allergy, where your throat is closing. An intolerance or a sensitivity is just the process of your body maybe not digesting food appropriately. This is actually not dangerous. So we can think about this with lactose intolerance. If someone is lactose intolerant and they has a bun- have a bunch of ice cream, it's not going to be dangerous in the fact that they have to go to the hospital, but it could be very uncomfortable. And the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology says it's very important to understand that food intolerance tests have never been scientifically proven to be able to accomplish what it reports that it does. The scientific studies that are provided to support the use of this test are often out of date. They're not in non-reputable journals, and many of them have not even used the IgG test in question, which is honestly crazy. So think about this in the fact, and I'm just going to name out this brand, sorry to them, but this is the one I see the most commonly, Everlywell or Everwell or whatever it is. And they put up some study that kind of talks about IgG antibody testing and they say, oh, look, this is how we know it works so well. Do you know that there's no way that they can prove that theirs works the same unless they replicate a research study? And ultimately, we want that to be unbiased, as in they're not involved in the results because they're obviously going to want to skew it, right? Freaking companies. The other thing to note is that the presence of IgG is likely a normal response of the immune system to exposure to food. They've even found that higher levels of specific antibody IgG4 to foods may simply be associated with a tolerance to those foods. So now imagine you get your results back, you have that you're intolerant to all these things because the IgG was high, and little do you know, you actually had a tolerance to those foods, but now you're taking it out. We're going to talk about this even more later on, but something important to remember is that one of the biggest drivers in our response to food is our mental, emotional, and psychological feeling before eating it. Now, number two is our GI map. So a GI map stands for GI microbial assay, and in this test, they take a sample of your stool, and they send it off, and they see basically what's in it, you know, what bacteria are in there, what pathogens could be in there, what parasites, all of that good stuff. They actually did a study on this where they took feces from healthy human subject and they basically tested to see if it had any negative bacteria in it. And once they confirmed that it wasn't negative or that it was essentially a normal sample and what was in it, they then actually added bacterial pathogens and, and also parasitic pathogens And they sent this out. They had seven controls, and they sent it to two different types of tests. So there was one that was a PCR-based biofirofilm array, and then there was another one that was the GI map essay. Now, I will say I don't know much about this PCR-based biofirofilm array gastrointestinal panel. What a mouthful. But I know that most people are not doing that, and that's why I want to speak to specifically the GI map. I hope that from the research that they've done that this kind of increases the use of a more reputable result, but I'm getting ahead of myself because essentially what they found is that there was significant variability with the GI map essay. Essentially, they were seeing parasites and detecting densities that were not actually accurate, and the sensitivity was 80%, and the specificity of it was only 26% due to many false positive results. So when they looked at these results, they recognized that this reporting of the presence of several pathogens that were not accurate could actually cause clinicians to treat with antibacterials or antiparasitic agents when there actually wasn't those pathogens in there, which, as you can imagine, can create a significant reaction in your gut and therefore making things worse. Now, our third and final test is the SIBO breath test. 
I'm going to mention that there are a few different ways to go about this, but I want to highlight the breath test because, again, this is what most people most people are getting. So it's a non-invasive breath test. Essentially, what you do is you drink the sugary solution, and if they detect hydrogen in your breath before the 90-minute mark, they're basically continually testing you, I believe, around every 15 minutes, then you have SIBO. The reason why they would say that this indicates SIBO is because those sugars should be digested in the small intestine and then they would release hydrogen and methane. So if you're seeing them in other areas, then that means that there's the overgrowth. And they basically do this 90-minute cutoff because it takes us about two hours for sugar to reach the large intestine. As you can imagine, probably even as I'm just going through this, you can see why there could be so many problems with this. And there are so many false positives and many experts and professionals extremely doubt the validity of this because you have people that have slow stomach emptying, also such a tie to disordered eating and eating disorders and chronic dieting. And there's also a lot of people that digest more quickly. So this can lead to a ton of different false positives and misdiagnosis. Plus, there's no standard protocol for introducing this. There was actually a really comprehensive study that looked at this, and they even talked about the fact that there's no quantitative cutoff that makes sense. There's no qualitative analysis that makes sense. And SIBO is dynamic, and there's lots of different things that could be triggering it. So to utilize the breath test is just kind of a, what's the best word that I'm looking for? A crapshoot? <laughs> there are other ways that you can do it, but they're, they're really kind of invasive, or they're literally testing me- medicine. There's one where you literally just try the medicine to see if it works. So it makes it a little bit challenging. The main takeaway from this is that all these tests that people are talking about, even if they're not giving blanket symptoms on TikTok, are often not even accurate. And I've talked with many people, most of them who are coming to me to join Live Unrestricted for disordered eating or eating disorder just struggles with body image, chronic bloating, and they were misdiagnosed or their health problems, gut problems never got better from going to see someone to treat their gut health. And most of the time, their gut health problems are actually even worse than when they started with someone. And this is especially because of the fact that oftentimes Western medicine and Eastern medicine aren't looking at this in a comprehensive way. In Western medicine, I feel like we see that oftentimes they don't take the time to get to the root cause. They rarely ask about eating disorders slash dieting history, although I have seen some really awesome GIs and doctors that have. They will just label it as IBS and give no other guidance. They make people feel kind of crazy, literally, for complaining about their issues, especially if they haven't seen a cause to it. And they often don't provide care unless it's in the extreme, right? If they do the test, they don't see anything, they're not really going to be helping you out. I do just want to say and clarify before we go into the Eastern side of this, that Western versus Eastern, I'm only using in this circumstance because they're used to depict different systems and approaches that medicine can have. So Western is much more focused on prescribing specific drugs for a disease, typically, and they use more of a systemic approach, utilizing symptoms and also separate organ systems to determine treatments. Now, Eastern is much more focused on treating the person as a whole rather than just their symptoms. So they approach diagnosing, treating, preventing disease in a more holistic manner, and they're going to embrace multiple factors in order to do that. So there are also downfalls when it comes to Eastern medicine, or what we more commonly hear it referred to as holistic medicine. The number one thing that I see is an obsession with healthy practices to the point where it can become unhealthy. 
It's putting people on these super restrictive, quote-unquote, healthy diets with very little things in them. It's having them do all of this toxin removal and hyperfixation on ingredients or even very unachievable wellness practices that most people cannot engage in because of cost, availability, etc. that I think creates some of the challenge here. Not to mention a lot of the time it's very expensive. Now, that's not just to the downfall of the practitioners that are engaging in it. It's very hard to get this covered by insurance, which is a bummer, but it's just something that can be a challenge. The sex sec sec <laughs> the second thing is that tons of people in this field are not qualified to be working in it. When I say this, I'm not speaking to the doctors that have gone through schooling to get here or to the registered dietitians, people that have done schooling and have credentials to get there. I'm talking about the fact that it's so easy for literally anybody to get a nutritionist title or name themselves a gut health specialist without any formal training. Most of the people that do this are nestling themselves under the holistic health umbrella because it there's a lot less qualifications and regulation in this area. Another thing that goes along with that is that misdiagnosis or assumptive care is definitely common because of the fact that there are a lot of people that aren't as qualified or because of the fact that people kind of go on TikTok to get this information and then get very just baseline recommendations they're not always getting treated exactly how they need to, or the root cause isn't always achieved if that person isn't qualified enough. But I've also just seen people kind of use baseline diets or different supplements to try to heal someone even when it may not be the best fit. The last thing that I will say that's a downfall is what we talked about before. It's the fact that the tests that are being used and the practices that are being used are not often, or not always, I should say, medically backed by research. Now, I will say, anecdotal reports and experiences are incredibly important. There are diseases that I can think of. For example, I was diagnosed with chronic EBV, and there's no regular, really research treatment for these things that's really strong. So I recognize that that's not always possible. But when we're speaking about gut health, although we don't have a laid out specific framework of every single one of these things is going to work because really that's impossible, there is a lot of research out there that I've even talked with you guys about regarding practices, tests, protocols, that can help and ones that may not help as much. And there are those that fall more under the holistic medicine arena and others that fall more under the Western medicine arena. I do think it's very important that when you're putting your care, your money, your time into someone, they're giving back that confirmation and reassurance that they are practicing in a way that is truly going to make an impact for you not just based off what they've personally seen in their practice or in their life. With all of this being said on both sides, I really just wanted to highlight that it makes tons of sense that there are so many people out there feeling really frustrated, overwhelmed, and confused on their journey to trying to achieve better gut health. And there's nothing more that I hope than this system being improved and people getting and providing better care to those that are struggling. I do think there are so many people out there that are doing their absolute best and really making a difference. But we also have to acknowledge those people that aren't necessarily making a positive impact, even if it's not intentional. Because it's so important to be informed since that's part of helpful care. So don't get me wrong. Gut health imbalances can definitely cause the symptoms I listed to you above. Bloating, 
sugar and carb cravings, fatigue, irritable bowel movements, irregular bowel movements, I mean, weak nails, poorly growing hair, low mood, low libido, trouble sleeping, anxiety, IBS. But here's the thing. Here is the kicker. These symptoms, you guys, can come from so many other freaking things. And it brings up the question from one of these articles that I read that I think is so important that they pose at the end. Are the changes of gut microbiota the cause of the disease? Or are they the consequence of the disease? Do you actually have a gut imbalance that's causing your stress, fatigue, bloating, yada, yada, yada? Or is your stress causing an imbalance? Is your eating disorder causing an imbalance? Are your toxic relationships and self-talk and environment causing the imbalance? Many of you listening to this podcast have struggled with your relationship with food before or are struggling with it. And even if you don't, you're here because you want to break away from diet culture. You want to understand what makes you feel your best. And that's why I want to focus for a second on chronic dieting, eating disorders, diet culture practices. This is really important. Bookmark moment. Every single one of the symptoms that I recited to you can also be symptoms of eating disorder, chronic dieting, disordered eating, and diet culture practices. Let me read you a list of things that can, can, can contribute to gastrointestinal challenges. Restriction of foods or amounts, skipping meals, eating an excess of fiber called volume eating, lack of diversity in your diet, binging, being stressed in general or especially around foods, <clears throat> eating really fast, over-exercising slash really intense exercise, not sleeping enough, laxative abuse or use, over-reliance on non-food ingredients. When was the last time that you scrolled through TikTok and saw a list of all of those things that can affect your gut? Not, not very often. Here's the facts. Eating disorders are insidious and gut health is not exempt from that. Functional gastrointestinal disorders are so common that up to 98% of patients with eating disorders have them. This is not just a coincidence. When you restrict, when you engage in ED practices, it can decrease your gastric motility, aka the movement in your gut, it delays your stomach emptying, and it disrupts your gut bacteria. And although there aren't many studies on it, we can definitely deduce from this, or at least guess, that chronic dieting and disordered eating that follows very similar patterns would most likely lead to a very similar result. And a lot of the time when I have patients come to me, clients come to me, they tell me that they're bloated all the time. And obviously we know that this is very common from the stat I just read you. Sorry, I just hit my little microphone thing. But there's also something I've noticed that is an important nuance to point out, which is the conversation of dissension versus bloating. Distension or puffiness is not painful, but it could be uncomfortable, especially if you're not used to eating to fullness. It happens when you eat more food, whether you are quote-unquote overeating or you're actually just eating normal amounts that you were restricting before. 
This also naturally happens to our body throughout the day. Going back to our small intestine and large intestine absorbing water. There's no way of preventing this natural process. And oftentimes, body dysmorphia is at play. It is out to frickin' attack. <laughs> Here. Now, bloating is painful. It is stabbing. It is cramping. It is pressure. It's all of those feelings. You are very distended, but you don't even have to be. That's just something it's, you may notice is you're even more distended than other times. There may be gas, and it could also be followed by GI challenges as well. Now, these two things, guys, they're not the same. And I cannot tell you how many TikToks I saw today as I scrolled through Gut Talk of women that quite literally had normal amounts of distension and puffiness that they were convinced was bloating. They showed the side-by-sides of them saying, look how bloated I am here. And, you know, I can't believe that every single food that I eat is causing this. And yet you could tell that that bloating wasn't there. Now, of course, I don't exactly know because I'm not in that person's body and I never, ever want to take away someone's experience. But the things that make me say this are so much bigger than just this moment. It's, it's the other things they post on their account. It's the way in which they're engaging with food and exercise. It's the way that they talk about their body. It's so much bigger than this moment. There are other women that I see and I think, wow, I can't imagine dealing with that bloating, dealing with that pain. You can see it in their body that there's an imbalance. You can see that there's something that's wrong. But here lies a problem. We have women that are most likely suffering from eating too little, working out too much, trying to fit a body standard that's unattainable by over-reliance on volume foods and quote-unquote healthy foods or not eating enough and skipping meals, that are constantly stressed, sleeping too little, and dealing with body dysmorphia, being convinced that now they also have gut issues. And that's the whole reason why they're having all these symptoms. So now what they're going to do is they're going to restrict more. They're going to not eat out. They're going to go on low FODMAP. They're going to get a SIBO test. They're going to stop eating sugar. They're going to eat a probiotic rich foods, even though this may not even help because as we saw, you may have overgrowth of bacteria. So are we really going to want to introduce probiotics or a probiotic might not be a good fit for you? They're going to focus on specific meal timing. They may try out fasting. They may do all of these other crappy things that we see all over social media. And yet, you know what was causing that bloating? Was the body dysmorphia and the practices that they were engaging in. So you know what all this does? It just makes it worse. And the reason why these women start to feel better is oftentimes because... They're not eating enough. So their body isn't as distended. They psychologically think that they're being healthier and they think that they look better. So when they look in the mirror those times that they think they're bloated, they don't think that they look bloated anymore. They could even be having body changes because of restriction and not adequately nourishing themselves. And all of a sudden, their gut health challenges go away. I saw a girl that was a huge advocate for this. She has no training at all. She was posting all these things that she did. She did every single thing that I've said in this uh, podcast. I was going to say video. (laughs) And then I went to her account, and she was also posting about how she was doing five-day ab challenges She had a full YouTube account of one day to a snatched waist and consistently talked about all of the foods that she was eating, doing what I eat in a days of incredibly restrictive amounts. And she is one of the people blowing up on gut talk right now. I speak about this so passionately, guys, because I have been here. 
I had an eating disorder, as you may have heard in my story, and I won't go into the full story, but you can definitely listen to that podcast episode if you'd like to. It's number two. And my gut health issues, my bloating, almost held me back from healing. I started to get into the cycle, right, where I restricted. Then I started to go into recovery or started to eat more normally, incorporate foods I had not been having. So I started to develop, quote-unquote, gut health issues, which really was just my body reacting to foods. This caused more bloating. That started to cause stress. And then I started to become stressed when eating, which made me more bloated, which caused more restriction. It's scary. So next thing you know, I thought I needed to eliminate gluten and dairy, be vegan, all those different things. I tried them all. Guess what? None of them worked. You know what else I was doing? I would do stuff like drink Tito's, even though I was convinced I was gluten-free. Or I would eat cheese off of a cheese board when I was drunk, even though I was quote-unquote dairy-free. But I swore when I was sober I had a totally different reaction to it. Mm. That's psychological. Gut health TikTok is really insidious. And the real tea about it is that the people that used to be promoting 1,200 calorie diets are the same people now that are promoting gut healing protocols. Now, I don't mean this literally, although there, of course, could be people that this is the case for them. I mean this in the sense that diet culture has now shifted in the way that people recognize it's not as socially acceptable, really, to talk about 1,200-calorie diets because people kind of know that that's not the right thing to do. And so diet culture finds a new way to grip onto people, and it shows gut health. So now there are people telling women that they need to cut out thousands of foods and saying things like, oh yeah, I broke out because I had a beer two weeks ago. I literally saw someone say that on a TikTok today. She's a quote-unquote gut health specialist, which is not a real thing. This is disordered eating and diet culture in disguise. That type of conversation. And there's no question about it in my mind. So let's get into the quick tips about this, because I could go on about this all day, as you may have heard, but I'm trying to keep it under an hour for you guys. (laughs) I really can't give tips on this in the way that I maybe do in other episodes, because it's a really, really complex topic, and the most important thing is getting to the bottom of specifically what you're dealing with. But the first thing is go get the necessary imaging done if you need to. A good test to this that we talk about is if you literally wake up in the morning bloated, and I mean actually bloated, oftentimes even in pain, very distended, something's going on. Definitely go check it out. Two, work with a dietitian that understands eating disorders and how to heal your relationship with food. Now, why I say this is because it can be too easy for you to go to someone and them to not realize how little tiny restrictions, either mental, emotional, physical, could be causing your gut health issues. So I believe it's very important to have that knowledge base. Even if that's not their specialty, that they are at least informed in this and probably even more ideal that it is their specialty. Ask yourself if you are doing those things that I said on that list before. They're restricting, not going out to eat, going on low FODMAP, et cetera, et cetera. Think to yourself, Is it really the food or is there something else going on? And this goes back to that question that we asked, right? There are a lot of other conditions that can also cause bloating. This could be Lyme disease, PCOS, and thyroid problems. Tons of different things can contribute. And yes, there's the chicken and the egg part to this conversation, but for some of this stuff, it's very important to know the overarching 
problem to be able to work through that. And the last thing I took away, which is for you, those of you out there that thought this was all interesting, but realized that you kind of just want to, you know, optimize how you feel and, and have a healthy microbiome with happy, healthy bacteria. The best thing to do is to add things in, add in the veggies, add in the fruits, add in the proteins that you like, have a balance. In all of those studies, that is what they found to be the most helpful. Bacterial diversity. That was it. It didn't say having a whole food diet with no sugar and all organic fruits and vegetables and blah, 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 blah. It said diversity. As humans, we are meant to handle diversity. We are not meant to live in this perfect little ecosystem of nothing coming in that we are not used to. And I can tell you that it is so much healthier for you to be able to go to a wedding or go out to ice cream or go out to eat with someone and have a food like gluten or dairy that you may not be used to and still be fine with it than it is to isolate yourself and eat your freaking chia pudding. I always attack chia pudding. I don't know why. It didn't do anything to me personally, but I have one last takeaway before we get into the rating. And if you listen to anything, please listen to this, especially if you are dealing with disordered eating, struggles with food and eating disorder. Outside of the severe GI conditions that we obviously discussed and the testing that you're, of course, going to get, you will not be able to cure your gut health issues fully until you cure your disordered eating, eating disorders, or struggles with food. I have seen it time and time again. I get asked a question all the time. I promise you the full healing doesn't happen because the psychological piece will still come in when you're eating. And if you cannot differentiate between a food not working well for your body because it actually physically doesn't and a food not working well for your body because you have a psychological reaction to it, it is going to be very, very challenging to fully heal. And I know that's not always what you want to hear, but that's what this podcast is about. The tea is always hot and piping. And sometimes it's your cup of tea, and other times it's really not. And that's okay. Hopefully you still love me either way. (laughs) Overall, my rating for this is a little tricky. And I think I need to give two ratings to accurately depict it. Because my overall rating for just gut health in general, you know, taking care of your gut, listening to your microbiome and how it's communicating with your body. I don't know why I said listening to it, but you know, just being aware of those symptoms when things feel off, adding in foods that make you feel good. I would say that's like a three. Now, I do know that IBD is mostly in developed countries, and I think that this kind of ties into the fact that diet culture, chronic dieting, all these things definitely connect to bloating and digestive troubles. But I also feel like this is just a very scientific thing and we all have this in our body and it wasn't created by diet culture. Now, gut talk, freaking 8 out of 10. Oh my gosh, I was almost exploding. I'm not even kidding. I was almost exploding today going through it because it just made me so upset to think about the number of women that are watching these videos and doing all of these things that are only going to make what they're dealing with worse. Like, that literally makes me want to cry. There are genuinely good people out there that are trying to help, but there are also so many that just have so many problems that are then projecting it onto someone else, and it's just really unfortunate. This was a packed episode. 
I knew that this one was going to be long, and it turns out that it was. But I wanted to make something that didn't just give this anecdotal... Anecdotal. I cannot speak today. If you made it through the whole podcast listening to me have so many word tripped ups, thank you. But I didn't just want to give an anecdotal account. I didn't want to just say, I'm a dietitian, so listen to me. I wanted to give you guys the real deal information. Like, these are the studies. This is the research. I swear to you, you can believe this stuff. And I am the type of person, personally, that needs that. Kind of a perfectionist. I'm really freaking stubborn. And so I created this podcast for you guys, of course, but also thinking of myself, the past me, that would have questioned everyone until someone literally sat down and said, you know what? This is it. This is the real info. So now it's your choice whether you're going to ignore it or whether you're going to listen to it. And that's totally up to you. No matter what, I really hope it was helpful and it was interesting. I do like to mix in episodes that are a little bit more research, scientific, and just into the nitty gritty with ones that are a little bit more lighthearted, fun, opinionated. And I hope that you guys like that. But of course, as always, let me know what you think. If you liked this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with someone, if you shared it on your story, if you sent me a DM about it, if you rated and reviewed, whatever your heart desires. It really does support me if you do those things. If you're listening to this and you're struggling with eating disorder, disordered eating, and you need support, I really hope that it pushes you to reach out. I will say I have tons of women right now in Live Unrestricted that are dealing with these exact things that we talked about. And they are already seeing huge changes from the program. This is only two weeks in to our current round. And there are so many other women that have had complete transformations from the tools. So I will have Live Unrestricted linked in the show notes. I will have all the research studies linked in the show notes. Last time I did have a little bit of trouble with Spotify not having all the research article links. So I'm going to do my best to make sure that they're in there. If not, feel free to DM me on Instagram and you'll find my Instagram also linked in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day, night, whenever you're listening, and I'll see you next week.